right, Mav mates, it's Ginny with your second mini Mav episode. First of all, I hope you've had a Mavtastic week. And if you want to get in touch and tell us all about it, it's just mavgeeks at bfbs.com. So this week's mini Mav is from the awesome Andrew Neofitu. Now, Andrew currently flies the Dreamliner. He used to be in the Royal Navy flying the Sea Harrier. And he also runs flightdeckwingman.com. Oh, and makes an excellent podcast called For Flying Out Loud. Here he is talking all things Mav Geek to me and my former Mav man, Alex Gill. Let's just go back, Andrew, to your Navy story. Where did it all start? Uh, in the pushchair, I think, Ginny, to be honest with you, like most um, people that say they always wanted to be a fighter pilot, say for me, yeah, it was in the pushchair. I think my mum used to say I'd look up at the sky and say sky every time I saw an aeroplane fly over. And, um, and then, yeah, it was pretty much my sole focus throughout everything to do with my school life, becoming a, a fast jet pilot, which is a super hard thing to achieve. And in fact, there were a few times where I thought I wouldn't achieve it. Uh, we, we chatted before this podcast, I was quite badly bullied at school. And I know it's uh, one of those things that I, actually on my podcast, I've received a huge amount of feedback on from people saying, you know, yeah, I, I'm struggling at school, found things difficult, but it became my sole focus despite that to carry on. And even, you know, some teachers, not all. And and then at university, when I was flying on the university escort, and a few people saying, you know, give up the dream, you're not good enough. But it became my sole focus to do it. And it turns out, obviously, I was pretty good at doing it. And when I joined, having failed to get into the Royal Air Force twice, <laughs> when I then was successful with the Navy, to then join and then to become one of such a small, really lucky group of people, but to um, ultimately fulfill my dream, which is to fly the Sea Harrier, was a yeah, proper dream come true. So many people will not <laughs> thank you for saying that you failed to get into the Air Force a few times as a fast jet pilot, <laughs> but the Navy let you in. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, it turns out that, that um, yeah, I wasn't talented enough or good looking enough to be a Royal Air Force pilot, but the um, <laughs> but the Navy saw something in me. <laughs> and can I just say as well, Andrew, that obviously we went to the same school and knowing that school, when you were saying about going through and, and getting to that point and you've done exceptionally well, God in the school you were at. <laughs> I think before the F-35 came along, you know, the Harrier is the aircraft in the back of everyone's mind that has the ability to take off up like a rotary aircraft and not, you know, need, <laughs> need a full row. You know, and the F-35 has fully kind of, you know, taken that kind of sphere now and it is very much part of that world. But the the gap between of capability from the Harrier going out of service and the F-35 coming in was, was quite large. So I think it, it holds a pretty special place for a lot of av geeks that it's, it's an aircraft that was doing something pretty remarkable for its time. Yeah, it, it did leave a, a big gap in capability. I think we're pretty lucky that there wasn't a requirement for it, actually, in the intervening period. But it is awesome to see naval power return with the F-35. And in fact, most of my sort of former mates from the Sea Harrier are now in pretty senior positions from being a test pilot. I was commander in eighth grade that I interviewed on my podcast. Um, to yeah, Commander Tim Flatman, who's just taken over, I think it's 207 Squadron, which is the OCU for the F-35 based at Amarum. Another friend of mine is the boss of uh, 617 Squadron, another F-35 Squadron, all of which oh, came from the Sea Sea Harrier community. So yeah, it's a really, really small world. It's awesome to see those guys doing so well. Talk us through the main difference between the Sea Harrier and the Harrier. Uh, so Sea Harrier was, was, if we look at the most recent Harriers that went out of service, what, about um, 10 years ago now? The Sea Harrier was like first gen uh, Harrier. So there was very little working for you in terms of augmented flight control systems, 
um, automa- anything automatic, really. Everything was very much done by the pilot. So I, I didn't operate the Harrier GR7, which became a GR9, but um, more stability augmentation systems from what the guys and girls told me, a bigger wing, um, what they call stall flaps, so flaps that would move automatically when you move in the nozzle lever, et cetera, whereas the Sea Harrier didn't have any of that tech happening for you, and a much smaller wing, an engine that wasn't quite rated to the same performance as well. So when we came off wingborne flight, so the wing stopped producing any discernible lift into jetborne flight where we started to slow down to hover that happened at around 100 knots on the sea harrier whereas on the gr9 i'm led to believe it would happen around 50 knots pretty um, slow so gives, oh really yeah that, yeah oh wow that's amazing but that's a lot slower it's a bit it's like half yeah. the speed it would come so it was a very very challenging airplane to fly and had a number of ways that it would try and kill you if you didn't handle it properly. <laughs> Blimey, yeah, I can imagine. And yeah. that's not a joke. It really did. <laughs> it really did. I was just going to ask you, actually, what were the challenges to fly? But, you know, obviously <laughs> there was a lot if it was trying to kill you, definitely. But was she quite a forgiving aircraft as well? I'm trying to find a reason. So where she is forgiving, I'm, I'm trying to think of one. Not really, no. <laughs> Sorry, Jenny, to throw that one at you. No, not particularly. What what the Harrier did have, uh, certainly low level compared to some other aircraft, was a lot of thrust because it needed this big jet engine to hover. And from low speed to accelerate, it was phenomenally powerful. So um, again, I haven't not flown F-18, but my mates that did, they said it without accelerating F-18 at low level. Um, so to give you an idea, acceleration wow. would be something like naught to 100 knots in about four seconds when you were, when you were sort of lightweight, and it would keep it would it would keep accelerating like that. It was a phenomenal, like brutal acceleration. I don't know how you can explain it to someone because it's not like getting in a car. I don't know, maybe an electric car because you don't feel any gear changes. You just feel this really smooth but extremely powerful acceleration. So I suppose that's one forgiving thing. It, you know, you could put on the burners. Well, not the burners, but the power. <laughs> at low level and gain back speed. I was listening to you talk earlier, and one of the things you were saying about was that sometimes the Sea Harrier flew with the air-to-air refueling probe out. That sounds like a really weird thing. Did that happen quite a bit? Well, it actually had um, a fixed air-to-air refueling probe on the left side of the aircraft that pretty much never came off. I guess the, t- the tech and the, the, the fuselage wasn't built to take a retractable one like the Harrier GR9 had. So we flew this thing all the time, which is a load of drag. I, th- I think the um, I think the French Navy fly their Rafales with a fixed refueling probe as well, which is a bit odd for a modern aircraft. But um, yeah, it would just it did produce a lot of drag. And interestingly, if you were in air combat, it was like a wing on the left hand side of the aircraft. And if you tried to turn left, it was essentially producing lift and trying to roll you right. So you're trying to roll left, and <laughs> the probe's trying to roll you right. So um, yeah, it could be a bit of a hindrance in air combat. Were you sad to see the Sea Harry going out of service? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, it was like such an iconic aeroplane, really. Although it'd been upgraded from what happened in the Falklands War, it was like an iconic aeroplane. It was like the it was like a navy designed aircraft, so um, it was a bit sad. But I was enjoying the airline life as well by that stage. <laughs> <laughs> What's up with the the wheels on the wings? What are they for? Because they always make me laugh when you just you kind of see them either side of it. And I've only ever seen really one other aircraft that has that. I don't even know if I'm allowed to to, to say it. I, mean, I guess we can talk about the U2 a little bit. The U2, yeah, yeah, yeah. Those either side of it. I think uh, the U2 is the only one I've ever seen. 
Oh, they, 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 they fall off it, don't they, when it gets they airborne. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I'm glad I didn't fall off to see Harry, although they nearly did on some of my landings. But basically, yeah, because it was sort of balanced on a main wheel and a nose wheel, like a glider or like the U2. And um, if it didn't have those outrigger wheels, they were called the shopping trolley wheels, then it would just <laughs> fall over. So, but actually, if you were hovering and then doing a vertical landing, if you landed with any sideways movement on, it was a real risk you could break them off. Which I did nearly a few times, but I got away with it. <laughs> so, yeah. Wow. But then uh, once you retracted the wheels, they sort of retracted it upwards and just pointed straight back. So years ago, I mean, I think it was 2008, I was at RF Akrotiri with BFBS Cyprus. And um, I drove to Nicosia and I saw a Sea Harrier on a scrap yard. And I didn't realise, but there'd been an incident at Akrotiri a few years before. And I think it was decided that the Sea Harrier was so close to being decommissioned that they weren't going to repair it. Was this anything to do with you, Andrew? <laughs> Quite possibly. <laughs> I mean, you'll probably <laughs> you'll probably find sea harriers scattered all over the world that have you know crashed or been written off one way or another. I mean, if you look back at some of the early books on the harrier, and you and you see there's there's pages of ejections. <laughs> You know, various different ejections where people messed up something, usually transitioning to or from hovering flight. That's usually when it bit people. But yeah, yeah, quite possibly. (laughs) (laughs) So one thing I I really want to ask is, what is it like to take off from an aircraft carrier? Because I just imagine, I mean, there's no other experience like it, surely. Um, yeah, it's, it's mega. I mean, the thing that always struck me about it was, again, it's, it's a lot, I'll, I'll talk about experience, the actual sort of flying airplane, how that feels, but it's like everyone there and everything that ship is doing is to get you airborne, get the, get, get the squadron airborne. And it's just mind blowing that you've got all these people on this, on this massive ship or well, invincible class. I flew was about a third of the size of, of the current class of carrier, but um, they're all there. And you sort of, you know, you walk, you walk out, you sign a tech log to say, yeah, I'll accept this airplane, walk out onto the deck. There's usually quite a breeze blowing. So to give us a little bit more performance so we can get airborne a bit heavier, the ship will be going as fast as it can. And I think invincible did about 38 knots, which is around oh, wow. about, you know, 50 odd mile an hour wind. And uh, that's a lot on, on you know, if anyone walking out at scale force wins, isn't it? Yeah. So yeah. you go out on the deck and then all the guys and girls are there getting the airplane ready and you sort of do walk around a bit, try not to fall off the back of the ship <laughs> and then uh, and then get strapped in. And it's just this sort of sense that everything's happening. I mean, the first time you do it, of course, first time you take off the ship is on your own. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a re- it's a real heart and mouth moment. I mean, we practiced it on land at uh, Royal Naval Air Station Yeovilton off the ski jump. But there you are on the ship. So you get in and they've got these pilots have these. You've probably heard it if you've interviewed other uh, fast jet pilots, this stuff called gouge, which is basically our information that we take with us. So I had my kneeboard gouge and it would have various things like, you know, minus 30 minutes, sign out, sign a jet, sign for the jet rather, minus 15 minutes, check in, minus 10 minutes, start engines, minus five minutes, blah, blah, blah. Um, I've got it in front of me, otherwise I'll tell you, I'll tell you what it says. It's pretty geeky. But um, so you do all that stuff and then um, and then, and then you line up and you either line up on your own or sometimes it'd be what we call an op launch where there might be four of you uh, right behind the other jet ready to go. Mm. And you'd look up at Flyco where everything was sort of directed from, wait for the green light. You'd look down at the guy on the decks holding the, the flag up ready to launch you. And then, um, yeah, and then you'd be watching the end of the boat and particularly going off the ski jump was really um, important to get your timing right. So you generally, obviously, you know, sort of ships pitch up and down 
And if you slam full power, is what you did to get airborne, went off the ramp and it was in a downwards trajectory. We didn't have a lot of performance. You know, that ski jump was to give us a little bit more oomph, if you like. And if the shit was going down at the end of it, you didn't clear the sea by very much. Um, So I would basically wait for it. I'd wait for it to go down. And as it started to go down, I'd slam full power hoping that by the end of the ski jump, it would be on an upward trajectory. But sometimes the shit would sort of go down and then get down a little bit more. It was sort of like doing two <laughs> stops. <laughs> um, yeah, and then basically just, yeah, you just, you're some full power, you're just trying to keep it going straight down the deck. Um, just looking at the tram line, you've probably seen this black line that's down the sort of middle of the sort of pseudo runway. And then hit the end of the ramp. Again, you've accelerated super quick. And as soon as you hit the end of the ramp, you just pull the nozzle levers in. So the what they call the stay stop, where you'd set it for takeoff to so have a bit of nozzle down. That sort of give you an extra punch airborne as you hit the end of the ramp. Really exciting. But it was just it was just getting airborne. That was just taking off, yeah. you know. Then you've got this whole sortie to go and do, and then you've got to come back and land on the ship. No time so on on that takeoff procedure for any V one rubbish. You're just there. <laughs> <Go>. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's it. Well, once once the once the wheel skids, so basically you stand your feet on the brakes, you put full power on, and then you'd wait for the aeroplane to skid, brakes yeah. locked, then you'd let go. And once you set off, there was no stopping. Wow. There's no stop. Are there any kind of heart in mouth stories that you can tell us? Yeah, a few. <laughs> <laughs> don't, know, don't, know, don't know where to start, really. Um, everything yeah. from nearly banging out when I messed up an acceleration away from the hover for the first time to had an engine failure, went 15,000 feet with no engine in a piece of airspace called the West Radar Corridor, just north of Heathrow, where my engine quit, but I managed to restart it, although it didn't produce much power. And then, yeah, a few months after that, about 30,000 feet at point nine, my, my canopy shattered, fatigue failure, also went down the engine and briefly stopped the engine as well. So I've had a few, a few oh, and I was all in the space of a year. So it's a pretty, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you're definitely getting that feeling that that plane's got it in for you somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, pretty much, yeah. Will you take us back to the story then of, of when your engine failed? Because obviously there's only one engine, isn't there, on the Sea Harrier? Were you like, oh my gosh, the training's kicking in? Or were you like, oh my gosh, the engine's gone? Or a little bit of both? Yeah, well, it was actually, I was on the OCU, the Operational Conversion Unit. So that's at the beginning of your training on the on the Harrier. And actually, I hadn't done much flying in the preceding sort of six months, only about 10 or 15 hours, because tragically, there'd been a, um, a fatal accident involving an instructor, one of my friends. So I hadn't done much flying, but we were just getting back into it. And uh, yeah, I was transiting back from RAF Wittering to RNAS Yeovilton, uh, with a staff instructor, he's my wingman. And uh, they said to me, well, you lead us back to Yeovilton because the weather's getting a bit rubbish. We're not going to get out of this sortie what we wanted to, so just take us back. And then, yeah, about 24,000 feet, crossing the airway, which is where all the airliners are, at 90 degrees just to get across mm. it. Military traffic does that a lot of the time. But as I cross the airway, right at the worst possible moment, you know, just in the middle of this airway, the engine uh, started rumbling, and then there was this sort of huge explosive noise and then it's really violent um, vibration, making it difficult to read the instruments um, and, a, and a really loud noise. Basically, one of the compressor blades from the middle of the engine had come off, gone through the engine, and that caused what they call a surge. So you think of it like the jet engine is sort of coughing. It's, it's um, trying to breathe in, but it can't because it's got a load of stuff in its mouth. Uh, I didn't know how badly damaged it was. I mean, afterwards, every single stage of that engine had been damaged and out of eight uh, of the stages of that high pressure compressor um the seventh and eighth stages were completely missing and every blade within the compressor was very badly damaged a bit like if you got blue tack and tore it and it would sort of like flop over and look a bit torn at the end all the blades wow. look like that 
So I went about 15,000 feet in cloud on standby instruments, which is like you get in a Cessna. Um, there was no head-up <laughs> display. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. that had failed because the, the generator dropped offline. My radar wasn't working because the generators had dropped offline. A military controllers on the ground asking me what was going on. <laughs> A couple of wingman saying <laughs> level out and I'm trying to fly this airplane. It's shaking really badly. But um, yeah, to cut a long story short, after about, I don't know, I'm going to guess about six or seven relight attempts, it did start producing some power, but not very much, which then brought another problem in that there were multiple ways to land the Harrier, but there was no written down way to land the Harrier with the amount of power that I had available. So I had about 50 hours on the jet, which is nothing. Um, doing this landing that there was no brief for, having just had a major engine failure, but um, never trade luck for ability is my motto. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> always better to be lucky than good. And uh, yeah, I managed to land the jet back at RF Wittering about 20 minutes later. So yeah, it was a fun day out. Good grief. And then you said about the canopy shattering, that must have been a bit of a sporting yeah. moment. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Just again, I didn't really know what would happen. Just trying to catch my mate up after a TV2 intercept for practice against two other sea harriers, huge explosion, couldn't breathe, couldn't see anything. Um, my, my face hurt, <laughs> didn't know what happened. And yeah, the canopy had shattered and the not so, we had a thing called a central warning panel in the sea harrier, just loads of lights dotted in random places around the cockpit. But um, everything was lit up and I looked, I saw right, the engine's not working properly. Then I realized that the canopy had exploded. This thing called forced pressure breathing comes in. So you get a bit of extra air pushed into your lungs because the air pressure is so low at altitude. So I was having to shout, a, because I couldn't hear anything very well because of the wind noise, <laughs> and B, because uh, of the forced pressure breathing, yeah. And um, the engine, j just a momentary surge, but that that rest restarted itself. Yeah, pretty frenetic uh, 20 minutes or so, landing into RAF St. Athen in the rain um, <laughs> with this. And I landed, <laughs> the funny bit is, I landed and the, uh, the fire crew came over to me and the canopy was obviously shattered. And he said, well, just get a um, an armourer over, sir. Someone who looks after the ejection seat and the detonation cord in the canopy. And then we'll get the canopy open and we'll get you out of your seat. I said, I don't think there's any needless. <laughs> and I just unstrapped. <laughs> we need to talk about the Dreamliner. Me and Alex are obviously complete Mav geeks, but we're Cav geeks as well, I suppose. I would love, <laughs> love the civil aviation jets. But I imagine it was like going from uh, the ridiculous to the sublime, like a, an aircraft like the Sea Harrier, which I imagine was quite dated inside. I mean, I don't know, but... Oh, yeah. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. To something like the Dreamliner, which is just like, mm, come and sit inside, have a coffee, I will fly myself, <laughs> that, that kind of thing. There must, much, be no yeah. there must be no comparison. No, there isn't really. <laughs> no, there, I mean, literally, there's no comparison. The only thing that is comparable are sort of standards that are set. I, I would say that, you know, military training, from my perspective, having gone through both, um, there is nothing that even parallels it outside in, in any other aviation sphere. It, uh, certainly the train I went through was just absolutely nails but the highest standards ever but in my company yeah the standards are super high and that expectation to maintain those standards not because you're going to war this time potentially uh, or to being prepared to go to war but um to look after the people that are your customers i actually really really enjoy it i love all sorts of aviation so i'm a mad keen competition glider pilot as well but the dreamliner wow is um it is a sublime experience for flying airliners i've flown 757 767 before it and the abus a320 and a330 but it's got this really cool blend really cool tech up the front it really looks after you i say these days it's more about operating the aircraft than flying them but yeah it's a, it's a great place to go and it takes me to some really cool places as well 
I'm a bit of an A320 fan, I've got to say. So it's interesting you, you, really, you really like the, you know, the tech and the bone. Because I think that you've yeah, obviously not flown one, Alex. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I haven't. I'd love to, but I haven't. No. Um, but uh, they're quite techy, though, aren't they? So it's interesting that you say the tech and the, the dream. I mean, it is. So, it's so new. It's so advanced. It's amazing. Yeah, it really is. And of course, it's got a head-up display, which is really cool. So um, That's cool. That's a, bit, that's a bit military. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's a really nice bit of tech, actually. The weather's bad, or if you find a visual circuit, then, you know, use that head-up display to look where the runway is and check out your sort of um, your vector uh, vertically is really, really useful. So I love it. Just quickly going back to the Harrier, obviously talked about a lot of the technical stuff with the aircraft and a few bits that went wrong. But what's your resounding memory of like you know the people you were with and when you when you do think back to your time with the squadron, what what comes to mind? Um, just a group of people who are at the absolute top of their game. There were, I mean, as people who did a lot more flying on the Harrier than me, a lot more experienced, a lot more talented. Um, but you know the the people that literally top of their game really really professional best pilots in the world i would say without a doubt see how your pilots um i'm sure there'll be people who who say that's not the case but i think they really i've only got to look at what's happened since with the f-35 chat we're having at the beginning to know that that's possibly the case um so yeah i was really really privileged to fly that jet childhood dream come true wow and we do this thing uh, as well andrew where we talk about jets and we ask the person that we've been speaking to would they kimble it or would they keep it <laughs> and considering it sounds like well, you, you, were, wouldn't, you wouldn't get me back in once so. I was going to say it sounds like you were flying a, like a, a, a rabid tiger around most of the time but uh, what would you do would you, yeah. would you send it to Kemba or would you, would you keep it uh, I'd like to see him flying still just so I can say I flew that one day to somebody else that's never seen one before but you wouldn't get me back in once so. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> let's just try and keep one permanently airborne if there's enough fuel <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. Do you want to give us your details again for, for your podcast and, and also for the businesses that you run? I'd appreciate that. Yes. Yeah, so you can find Flight Deck Wingman on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter uh, for Flying Out Loud podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. I put a buy me a coffee link in there. People like it. They want to keep the shows going. I'd really appreciate it if someone would consider doing that. But yeah, it's been really nice to talk to you both. And I'm very grateful of your time. So if you do want to find out more, it's flightdeckwingman.com and of course that excellent podcast for flying out loud. Join Jamie and I next week for a full-on Mav Geek episode. Catch you next week. Mm-hmm.